The next Bible reading is from Luke 23, verses 26 to 49. As they led him away, they see Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly, because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Now, Easter weekend is the most significant week in the Christian calendar. It is more important to Christians than Palm Sunday or Reformation Day. Uh, it's more important than, than Christmas. And um, to put it bluntly, Easter, without Easter, our faith actually means nothing. Now, today we've been focusing on Jesus' words on the cross. And the readings we've been reading are all the things that Jesus have said has said while he was on the cross. And our aim today is to help us to reflect deeply about what, uh, what humans did to Jesus on the cross. As we reflect on it this morning, we're going to think about um, these uh, in, in Luke, the, the three statements that Jesus makes. And we're going to be looking at the question uh, whether we were there when Jesus was crucified. 
And the first of the words that Jesus speaks in our chapter, in chapter 23, is uh, Jesus praying for the crowds, and he says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And I think we need to think about what it is that Jesus is doing when he does this prayer. There is, uh, he's praying that the Father would forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So there's two questions, what were they doing, and how would the Father forgive them? Now notice that this is a prayer of Jesus. He is talking to God the Father here. And what he asks him is to forgive them because they don't know what they were doing. So what is it that they were doing? Well, they were handing over an innocent man to die the death of a traitor and a terrorist. But it's more than that. Let's think about what Jesus was suffering here. He was in complete and utter humiliation. He had been robbed of everything he had. He had been robbed of justice. He was crucified in the place of a, a traitor, ba a Barabbas. He had been robbed of his reputation. He was the one who hung on the cross, even though he was completely innocent. At this stage, he had been robbed of his friends. The spectre of the cross had so frightened his disciples that they abandoned him. Even his closest friend denied that he ever knew him. He was robbed of his honour. Here was the Word of God, who had created the whole universe, being tortured and killed by the very creation. And at the end of verse 34, we are reminded that he was robbed even of his last earthly possession, his clothes. They cast lots for it and divided his clothes between them. And in the midst of this total humiliation, Jesus shows utter and total humility. When he hangs on the cross, what does he say? Does he call down God's curses from heaven upon him as he had the power and the right to do? Does he summon an army of angels that were available at his command at this point? Does he, with all the power he has, blast apart the cross and claim triumph over the whole affair. No, in the midst of utter and total humiliation, Jesus shows utter and total humility. And he prays for his enemies. He prays for those who are doing all these things to him. And in some ways that seems surprising. But when we think of it, this is what Jesus has been doing since he was born. He, he was God in the flesh, living amongst his enemies from the day he was born. He lived amongst people who had sinned, sinful people, people whose actions caused death and God's wrath. And in some ways, his entire life has been a life of humiliation amongst his enemies that had prepared him for this moment, where here he cries out for the forgiveness of those that have hunted him and are now killing him. He prays for his enemies in the middle of his humiliation. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand that they are killing the very word of God, the Son of God. But have you considered how remarkable this prayer actually is? Because Jesus becomes the answer to his very own prayer. 
How is it that Jesus could pray this? How could he pray for God to forgive? Because he was God's forgiveness. The only way forgiveness works for sin is for the debt to be paid. The debt of sin has to be paid. And who pays the debt of sin here? Jesus himself. He is the answer to his own prayer. In fact, the only way that the Father could forgive is if Jesus was going to go through with the crucifixion. Yes, he could have called down curses from heaven. He could have summoned this army of angels. He could have blasted the cross apart and triumphed over the whole affair. But because he wants his own prayer to be answered, because he wants reconciliation between people and God, he doesn't reject the suffering. He doesn't reject the torment he goes through. He doesn't reject having God's wrath for sin poured out over him. He is determined to see things through to the end. And he would do whatever was necessary to earn the very forgiveness that he prays for. Even if it kills him. And it does. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. He knows what that prayer would entail. They might not know what they were doing, but he knew. And he knew what he was doing as well. That's the first reflection on what Jesus says on the cross. The second thing he says in Luke chapter 23 is, Truly, today, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So he prays for these people uh, and then the soldiers mock him from verse 37. Uh, they say to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And they put this inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. And then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back the things we deserve. But this man did nothing. And then turning to Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the situation is this. Jesus is there in the center cross between these two criminals. And in the two criminals, we see the choice that humanity has. There are actually only two options for how you will deal with Jesus on the cross. Either you will reject him, as does the one, or you will acknowledge him as saviour, as did the other. The first choice that the criminal makes, this criminal, is that he rejects Jesus. He expresses his rejection by mocking Jesus and yelling insults at him. But we can reject Jesus in a whole bunch of different kinds of ways. The most obvious way is simply to disbelieve in him, so to not believe. Maybe we don't believe that he actually existed. Maybe if we believe that he existed, we know that from history, we don't believe that he's actually the Son of God, except that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, he did come to earth to live a perfect life and to die in our place. And so if this is you... Friends, you need to come to him today and acknowledge your own wrongdoing, your own sin. And he may even answer you today this own prayer that he prayed even then with respect to you. Father, forgive him or her because they do not know what they are doing. Or maybe 
You have rejected Jesus by believing a distorted version of who he is. Maybe to your mind Jesus was just a good moral teacher. You know, he's kind of on par with Gandhi and Buddha and, and these kinds of people. He's a person worth following because his moral teachings were so good. But the reality is that that's not really even an option, friends. Because when we consider Jesus, he was either the Son of God truly or he was a madman. No one sane claims to be God's son. If you were walking down the street, you met someone who said, I am the son of God, what would you do to that person? You'd probably lock them up in an asylum. You would reject them as insane. You certainly wouldn't follow them. So either Jesus truly was the son of God, as he claims, or he was insane. You cannot hold the view that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Or... Perhaps you have rejected Christ because of a negative experience you've had with the church or with another Christian person. Maybe you've seen that Jesus' followers don't really seem all that much like their Messiah. And in fact, that you look at Christians and you think, well, they're pretty hypocritical. And you would be right, but you would be welcome to join us. You wouldn't reject the truth simply because the person telling the truth is flawed, would you? You don't reject Jesus simply because his followers are flawed. We know we are. But because he has given us new life, we seek to be more and more like him. So come and join us on that journey so you can start following him too. Or maybe still, you have rejected Christ because you have doubts about whether God could even exist. I invite you to consider, friends, that it is far more logical to believe that God created the universe than it is to believe in a godless, random universe. There are very good reasons to believe this, and I'll give you just two quick ones. First is the cosmological argument. The universe had to come from somewhere. Everything that has ever been made comes from somewhere. And it makes far more sense that someone designed the universe the way it is rather than some random fluctuation in the nothingness that existed before the Big Bang. Both of those two things are faith positions that are unprovable scientifically. You can't prove what happened before the Big Bang scientifically. It just takes less faith to be a Christian. Or there is the argument from fine-tuning. Our universe as it exists is extremely finely balanced. If you change even one of the constants that, that exist in the universe by the tiniest amount, the strength of gravity, the speed of light, the power of the weak or the dark, uh, the weak or the dark, the weak or the strong nuclear forces, if you changed any of those by even just the tiniest little amount, life ceases to exist. And doesn't just cease to exist in the way that we experience it today. The possibility of life ceases to exist. Planets cannot form. Suns cannot coalesce. The universe would either expand into nothingness or collapse in on itself. Where does this fine-tuning come from? I would argue that it is from someone who designed a universe finely, that is, God. It is possible that we live in one of a multitude of universes where the cosmological constants change from universe to universe, but if that's true, you happen to find yourself in exactly the one where life is possible. And if there are an infinite number of universes and you happen to live in this one, it takes far less faith, friends, 
to believe that God made the universe, then you, then you happen to randomly land on the one where things are possible. So you can reject Jesus in a whole bunch of different ways. But the end result for all the rejections of Christ is the same. That criminal who mocked Jesus did not inherit eternal life. He chose to reject Jesus in this life and God gave him what he wanted in the next. Eternal separation from Christ. You can choose to reject him, but it will not be good for you. Or you can go the way of the other criminal. Look at what he says in verse 30. The other criminal answered him, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are being punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then Jesus said to him, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In what the other criminal says, he recognises that Jesus is being punished unjustly. He believes in Jesus because he asks him, with humility, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He could not have asked that unless he believed that Jesus had a kingdom. He could not have asked that if he did not believe that Jesus was going there. But notice what the second criminal didn't have. He didn't have options. He couldn't live a good life. He had perhaps a few hours left to live. But still Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. He could not go and live a good life. With no, he, he had no ability to redeem himself. And still Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. He had no baptism He had no water to give him the sign that he was washed clean by the work of Jesus on the cross. And yet Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He did not read his Bible and pray every night. And still Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't have a prayer routine he could rely on. He didn't have accountability partners that could help him overcome his, his sins. He didn't have a church to come to on Sundays. He didn't have sermons and podcasts and, and other people to encourage him in his walk with Jesus. And still Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He had nothing to recommend him to God. All he had was a life of crime and that was all he had. But he had faith, and because he had faith, Jesus says to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me. Friends, this causes us to think, where do we go to find our salvation? On what or on whom do we rely to make us right before God? Is it the good life we lead? Because then Jesus will say to us, Away from me, you evildoer, for I do not know you. Is it attendance at church on Sunday, at Easter and Christmas? Away from me, you evildoer, I do not know you. 
Is it our Bible reading, prayer, sermons, podcasts we listen to? Do we rely on these things? If so, Jesus will say to us in the final judgment, away from you, from me, you evildoer, I do not know you. What do you rely on to make you right before God? What are the things that you say, because I do these things, I am okay before God? You see, friends, until we realize that like the thief on the cross, like this criminal who has nothing and no option to have anything before God, unless we realize we are like him, we cannot be saved. As the famous Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. And it is not until we realize that we have nothing to offer God, that we have nothing in this life that can save us, nothing that can undo the sin we have, unless that truth drives us in desperation to the cross, you and I cannot be saved. You must realize, like this criminal, who Jesus was and who you are. Jesus is the King of the kingdom, the Messiah who comes to take your sin on himself and dies on your, in your place because you have nothing you can do before God. Understand that and then fall on your knees before him because your sin put him on that cross. And unless you understand that, he will say to you, Away from me, you evildoer, for I do not know you. We sang before, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? As John Stott says, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we must see the cross as something done by us. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh yes. I was there. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But it was accomplished. Jesus actually succeeded. And that's the last thing we need to think of this morning. Verse 46, Jesus calls out with a loud voice. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. God's wrath being poured out on Christ is what killed him. It wasn't the Roman soldiers who crucified him. It wasn't the governor Pilate who killed him. It wasn't the Jewish people who raised up, uh, you know, the Jewish leaders who raised up the people crying crucify. Of course they played a part. But Jesus did not die until the work was finished. It was not until the curtain in the temple was torn into that Jesus gives up his spirit and dies. Yes, we put him there, but his work was a success. And so what is it that we remember today? It is just this. 
Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. For it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath has brought me life, bought me life. I know that it is finished. Let me pray. Lord, may it never be that we look to our lives and the good things we do and demand that you accept us on the, on the basis of these things. May we realise that we are but the criminal hanging on your side with nothing to offer except the life of crime against you. Lord, we pray that for those of us who do not believe you, we pray that you will remember us when you come into your kingdom. And for those of us who know you, may we never forget that fact and always run to the foot of the cross where we too find eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.